Good morning, everybody. Wow, what a wonderful worship experience this morning. I could uh, sing with, with our band and singers all morning long. Wow. Wow. Just, I'm so grateful, so grateful for them. And um, actually, I can't sing all morning because my job is to teach. And uh, I'm going to do that for the next 40 minutes or so. Um, so glad all of you are here. So glad for so many of you joining us online today. If we've not met, my name's Terry Smith. I'm the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church. I've been the lead pastor here at the Life Christian Church for almost 30 years now. So uh, that's my introduction to those of you who are new to us. So good to see so many of you. Good to see you, Ray. So good to see all of you. So today, we join with Christians from all over the world in celebrating the first Sunday of Lent. As you probably know, Lent is the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter, not counting Sundays, during which we are encouraged to focus on Jesus and his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Lent, properly understood, helps us prepare our hearts to receive fully all that Jesus is and did and does and to fully embrace the more and better life that he promised. Frequently, of course, people talk about Lent in terms of what they're giving up for Lent, which is well and good as long as our purpose for giving up something or fasting something is to help us focus on someone, and that someone is Jesus Christ. I am giving up something for Lent, but I'm doing it in the same way that I would practice fasting or some other spiritual discipline, which is to say that I'm giving up something in order to help me pay more intentional attention to the person of Jesus, and I encourage all of you to do the same. And I promise that we're going to do everything possible here at TLCC to help all of us experience and know Jesus more during this Lenten season. So today, we launch a new series called The Story of Jesus. Each Sunday for the next seven weeks, we will focus on the story of Jesus as told us in the Gospel of John. And we'll do that by focusing on a story, or as is the case today, a section of the Gospel of John where we'll dig somewhat deep into that uh, in order to learn more about Jesus. And we're going to enhance the teaching, as we always do, through our daily devotionals, which uh, I hope you'll sign up for uh, on the connection card, our life group discussions, and more. I strongly suggest that you make a commitment to be a part of every Sunday service during Lent, between now and Easter Sunday, and that you engage as much as you possibly can in so many of the other spiritual growth uh, activities that we offer here at TLCC. So here's the amazing scripture that inspired this series. It's in John chapter 1, verse 18, where John said, and you just heard it read, and I'll read it again in a moment, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Or as Frederick Dale Bruner has it in his translation, and we're going to use his translation a lot during this series. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only Son, whose being is back at the heart of the Father, he came down and explained God. Jesus explained 
God. In the last series, the first series of this trimester, and you know we plan a spiritual growth theme and plan that lasts four months at a time. In our last series, in, at the beginning of this trimester, we discussed the story of God and tried to give some definition to God, indefinable as he is. But really, if you want to learn about God, you must look at Jesus. As Eugene Peterson wrote, the four gospel writers, backed up by the comprehensive context provided by Israel's prophets and poets, tells us everything we need to know about Jesus, and Jesus tells us everything we need to know about God. So John says at the beginning of his gospel, essentially this, do you want to know what God is like? Jesus explains him. Many of you have been to uh, Trafalgar Square in London, and, and uh, kind of the centerpiece of Trafalgar Square is the, is the uh, statue of Lord Nelson. It sits on a, on a column. I think it's about 60 feet high, actually. The problem is that as intricate as the sculpture of Lord Nelson is, people standing on the street can't see all the way up there. They can't see what Lord Nelson looks like. And so, some very smart people 50 years or so ago made an exact replica of the statue all the way up there and they put it at eye level so a normal human being could stand there and see what it is that's going on all the way up there. See, we're told in Hebrews chapter 1 that Jesus is the exact and express image of God. That Jesus shows us what God looks like. And so the God who was all the way up there as we've talked about in recent weeks, transcendent, infinite, omniscient, sovereign, all of that, that God who's way up there and so difficult to comprehend, that God showed up and showed us exactly what he's like in the person of Jesus Christ. It's like the little girl who was frightened at night uh, in the middle of a thunderstorm, four-year-old girl ran down the hallway, burst in her parents' room, jumped in bed, snuggled up between them, and her dad said, I guess her super spiritual guide, he said, honey, don't worry, God will take care of you. She said, daddy, right now I need somebody with skin on. Well, Jesus was God with skin on. And through Jesus, we see God. So, Theologians say that Jesus was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. And we're going to study Jesus over the next seven weeks. Now we're going to attempt to do this by, again, working our way through several uh, sections and stories primarily, though not so much today, in the Gospel of John. The source material in the Gospel of John came from one of the people who knew Jesus best. John probably wrote this Gospel, I won't spend a lot of time on the background, or began writing it as early as pre-70 AD, or about, and this is important, about 35 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, John probably wrote this gospel from Ephesus where he had become a bishop overseeing a number of Christian churches that had grown up during that time. Uh, Ephesus, of course, in modern-day Turkey then in what was called Asia Minor. And John wrote this to, to, uh, to Christians and to people considering faith in order to tell them what God was like through the person of Jesus Christ. 
And he did it as someone who lived contemporaneously with Jesus, who actually saw him, ate meals with him, walked with him, fished with him, um, touched him. He, in fact, uh, there's this great passage in John's first letter to the church that kind of captures this, where he said, he said, that which, which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life, Jesus. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. One of the things that I love about John's gospel, and I've taught about this uh, recently, so I won't spend a lot of time with this, is John writes his gospel from the perspective of an excited teenager who somehow or another found himself walking around with God in flesh. John was probably a teenager when, when he met Jesus and when his discipleship started. And when you read through the Gospel of John, guys, you have to kind of hear this excited kid saying, Oh, you can't believe what I saw. God showed up. And I had dinner with him. And here's what happened at dinner. And I saw him do this, and here's what he said. And then the other thing you have, to, you have to think about when you look at the Gospel of John, and again, I've taught about this recently, I won't spend a lot of time with it, is how John describes himself in the story. You remember how John describes himself in, this, in his Gospel. He describes himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Five times, John puts himself in the story and identifies himself, and his self-identification was this, he loves me. So, you, you, again, when you read the Gospel of John, you can't read something stale and sterile and something, you know, some ancient words from 2,000 years ago. You got to get the idea of this teenage kid who Jesus shows up, and John's one of his probably first two followers. And, 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 and you hear John with all the excitement in his voice saying, God showed up on the planet and he loved me. Okay? So. Those of you who are new to us, every once in a while I get excited and yell. I'm sorry. I try to back off and get more like a normal person, but I'm pretty fired up about all this Jesus stuff, okay? So, so, so my intention today, my intention today is to read all the way through John chapter 1, his introduction to Jesus. It'll take a little while. Frankly, I'm going to teach just a tad longer than I normally do, which is already long. But um, you can leave anytime you want. No one's, no one's barring the door. And my intention is to read through all of John chapter 1, and, to, and, and I'm going to be very simple. I'm going to make some observations about what I read. That's really all I'm going to do. And the text really speaks for itself, but I'll try to expand on it a little bit in a way, hopefully, that's helpful to you. And the way that I'm going to organize my thoughts the rest of our time is I'm going to talk about how in John's introduction to Jesus, there are four people or groups of people who are witnesses of Jesus, okay? And so I'm going to talk about these four witnesses. Uh, the first one is John himself. John himself. John the Beloved, or as he's off, also often called, John the Evangelist, and he's frequently called John the Evangelist in relationship to the Gospel of John. 
Now, if you'd like to, you know, we used to have life notes in the seat back pockets and everybody knew that, uh, but during COVID, we've decided not to print that. You can follow along in our life notes, just do the QR code thing, go to our app, whatever. You'll find the life notes, you can follow along. For whatever reason in our church, we have a lot of people who love to take notes and who like to fill in blanks. So you can even fill in the blanks if that's your thing. Uh, okay, so here's John the Beloved. Let's just read John chapter 1, verse 18, the first section of John chapter 1. Here it is. In the beginning was the Word. Here's John. Get this in your mind, please, in the way that I've just said it. He's, he's just bursting to tell us this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This one was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and apart from him was not one single thing made. When what had been made, the creature, was in union with him, the creator, there was life. And this life was the light of the human race. And this light shines on in the darkness, and the darkness did not put it out. Now he refers to John the Baptist, which he'll do several times uh, and this, and he says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. This man came to be a witness, to bear witness to the light, so that all might come to believe through him. He was not himself the light. No, he came to bear witness to the light, the true light, who enlightens every human being was in the process of coming to the world. He was already in the world, of course. The world was made through him. But the world did not recognize him in the creation, so he came into his own human home, but his own family of human beings did not welcome him. But whoever did welcome him to them, he gave the privilege of becoming the very children of God to those who are simply believing his person. They were born children of God not by a confluence of bloods biologically, nor by the willpower of the flesh psychologically, nor by the willpower of a strong person spiritually, but by the sole power of God alone. And so the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, and we saw his glory it was like the glory of an only son from a father full of grace and truth. John bears witness to him, and we can still hear him crying out and saying, this is the one I was telling you about when I said, the one coming after me as my successor actually ranked above me as my superior because he came way before me as my predecessor. Because out of his fullness we have all received one grace after another grace the law, and then Jesus. For while the law was a gift through Moses, deep grace and deep truth came through Jesus Messiah. God, no one has ever seen God. He's way out there. But God, the only Son, whose being is back at the heart of the Father, he came down and explained God. So, John's essentially saying, let me introduce God to you. I knew him. Let me introduce God to you. And he begins by talking about God and all of his godness. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The, this one was in the beginning with, with God. All things were made through him, and apart, him, apart from him was not one single thing made that was made. It's very important to John. So you see, the other three Gospels start with Jesus somewhere prior to his birth and his birth in that story. John starts with Jesus before the beginning as the one who said in the beginning, let there be light and there was light. 
He was, John wants us to know, the energy and voice, the word that caused the the big bang and all that followed. He was with God and was God, John wanted to tell us. And furthermore, he was the source of life and the causer of life. Here's what he said when what had been made, the creature, was in union with him, the creator. There was life, and this life was the light of the human race. It was important for John to know that Jesus spoke as the word and turned the lights on in the universe, but now he is wrapped up. The very source of life is wrapped up, he's going to tell us, in the body of a man, and now he has come to the planet to turn the lights on in the spiritual realm and in the souls of people. And then he says, now the darkness tried to take his life and cause the light that the life brought to stop shining, but he says the darkness could not put it out. When I read that, I I, I think about three things, which is pretty common when when you study theologians who study this passage. So he says, you know, in the beginning there's God, and God spoke, and, and out of him, the word, the logos, came life and the lights in the universe turn on and now John says all this gets wrapped up in Jesus who I'm about to tell you about and and just know that he came and he as that life to bring light but the darkness tried to put it out and typically we, we think about three things when we think about that first of all of course we think about the crucifixion that through the crucifixion, evil, darkness tried to snuff out the life of God, and darkness thought that it had won. But of course, no one's snuffing the life of God out. God decided that he wanted to enter death so he could defeat death and be raised from the dead. And so John says, hey, you guys already know this. The darkness tried to turn the light out, but the light, he says, shines on. And then secondly, we think about the church, and we think about the light shining through the church over the last 2,000 years. Um, It's amazing how that God has used very flawed human beings who together comprise the church in this world, and that somehow, as much as so many of us have tried in so many ways to mess everything up, Somehow or another, still, even through the church, the light shines on. It's like a church historian, Gilbert Chesterton, said. He said there have been probably five times in history where, where it looked like the church was going to the dogs, but it's always the dogs who died. Somehow or another, as Jesus said, on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And frankly, sometimes I look around at the church First of all, I know our own imperfections. The Life Christian Church isn't a church full of perfect people or a church with a perfect leader. Trust me, ask anybody who's been around here. They'll be too quick to tell you how imperfect the leader of the church is. Uh, so, So I know us and all of our imperfections, but I also know there's an authenticity about the people who make this their church home and so on and so forth. But, but, I, but I look around the church writ large, and the fact is I see lots of things that concern me. But I, I have this knowledge that because of who Jesus is and because the church is the body of Christ where his life and light is made manifest, that the darkness, try as it might, cannot put the light out. The light shines on. And then the third thing I think about in that passage is I think about 
each of us as individuals. The fact is that all of us know what it is to have the darkness come and try to put our light out. We face tremendous challenges. We face tremendous difficulties. Some of it's imposed from the outside and some of it, it comes from our own selves. But the fact is that all of us know what it is to face the darkness and at times to have this sense that the darkness is winning. But see, here's the deal. The God who at the beginning spoke a word and and created life and turned the lights on is the God now through whom in his spirit, the spirit of Jesus lives in you. And just as sure as the darkness could not snuff out the life of Jesus, the darkness cannot snuff your life out either. The light shines on. And then John's constantly in his gospel talking about life, 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 life. Our theme here at TLCC and part of the benediction every week is we pray John chapter 10, verse 10 of Scripture familiar to people that don't even know Scripture, where Jesus promised life in all of its fullness, or as the message translation has it, more and better life than we ever dreamed of. And that's typical of, of John. If you heard my Ash Wednesday message, you heard me talk a little bit about this. In, in the Gospel of John, the word life is synonymous with the word salvation. It's how John describes kind of the end result of what Jesus came to do. He came to bring life. Well, um, there's nuance that's important here. In the Greek language, which is you know, the language in which the Gospel of John was written, in the Greek language there are several words that are translated life. And two primary words that you'll quickly uh, grasp is the word bios, and bios has to do with our biology. And when we talk about someone having bios or life in that regard, it means that they exist. And we can look at everybody in this room, and unless we're caught up in the deeper realms of confusing, uh, abstruse uh, philosophy, we can look around and know that everybody in this room exists, right? You're biologically, you have bios, you have life. But, but the word that John constantly refers to when he talks about Jesus in the beginning and when he talks about the life that Jesus brought to us is he uses the Greek word zoe. And zoe means life as God has it in himself. It means deep, meaningful life. And so, so, so John could say that because of the word Jesus spoke at the beginning, there's bios, there's, there's life. But, but that Jesus was actually Zoe. He, he was life itself, the source of life itself. And when we believe in Jesus, John tells us, that's the life that we have. We have life as God has it. No wonder the darkness cannot snuff that life out. And then when you go on reading here in this section of, of John chapter 1, you, you get to this part where it says now, um, the true light who enlightens every human being was in the process of coming to the world. He was already in the world, of course. The world was made through him, but the world didn't recognize him in creation. And you, you understand then that uh, there's this teaching in the New Testament, you can find it in Romans 1.20 as well, that people should be able to see God through creation. And some people are able to see God through creation. But the fact is that the world writ large still didn't comprehend God through creation. So now we're told that 
so he, so he came. So the world did not recognize him in creation. So he came into his own human home, his own family of human beings. They didn't welcome him either, but now we get to the good news, whoever did welcome him. To them he gave the privilege of becoming the very children of God. To those who are simply believing his person, they were born children of God, not by a confluence of bloods, not because two people got together and, and produced a child, not by the willpower of the flesh, not because somebody religiously said, I can do this, I can keep the law, I can keep the rules, I can be a child of God, not, um, not nor by the willpower of a strong person spiritually, someone saying, I'm a spiritual person, God's lucky to have me, hi God, here I am. Not that way. They were born children of God, not by a confluence of bloods biologically, nor by the willpower of the flesh psychologically, nor by the willpower of a strong person spiritually, but by the sole power of God alone. You guys, most of you are very aware of this, but we need to be reminded of it. The way that we come into a relationship with God through Jesus and the way we receive the life the zoe of God and the way that the lights get turned on and the darkness can't turn it off. The way all that happens, the way we become children of God is through simply believing in his person. It's not because we keep the rules. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we give enough money. It's not because we give up something for Lent, although that's a good thing to do if we do it for the right reason. It's not because we come to church every Sunday. It's not because we're spiritual people. None of those reasons, none of those things allow us to become children of God and to receive this born-again new life thing that comes through Jesus. We receive that simply by believing in his person. We say, I believe that what you did in, through your life, death, resurrection, ascension, I believe that what you did, I believe. I believe in you. I believe in your person. I believe in what you came to do for me. I believe. Guys, I don't understand it. If I were God, I probably would have made it more difficult for all of us. But that's the simplicity of the gospel. It's simply by believing in him that the God who in the beginning created the world now indwells us by his spirit. Simply by believing his person. And then I'll close this section and I need to talk faster um, in the next few sessions. But then you get to the money, the money shot in John chapter one, verse 14. And it's where John after, you know, saying some of the things that I've commented on and so much more that I haven't commented on and so much more that I don't comprehend and can't comment on. Then he says, so the word is, you know, here, here God is at the beginning. Wow. And then he says, so the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. I mean, oh boy, so good. Literally, it's the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. Uh, the King James says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But this is a pretty common translation. The word, God, became flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. Um, theologians might say it like this, that remaining what he was, he became what he was not. In other words, he was still God. All the godness stuff 
transcendent, imminent, I mean transcendent, infinite, omniscient, sovereign God we've talked about in recent weeks. He still was all of that. But yet now he moves into the neighborhood, though being what he was, he became what he was not. What he had not been was a person. God becomes a person. He shows up on the planet. I read a really, I think, beautiful story a number of years ago about how Heidi and Paul Jackson uh, gave birth to twin girls uh, prematurely. Brielle and Kyrie were their names. This happened in, all the way back in 1995. And these little girls were born 12 weeks before they uh, really were due to be born. And as was the common practice at that time, they placed each of these preemies in their own incubators in the neonatal intensive care unit of the hospital where they were born. And one of them, Kyrie, the larger one, was two pounds. And um, she quickly began gaining weight and calmly sleeping through the night, and all of her vitals were good, and, and, and they knew she'd need to stay in the neonatal unit for a long time, but she was going to, every reason to believe she was going to be a healthy uh, child and grow into adulthood. But the, the other little girl, Brielle, um, I'm sorry, Kyrie, the larger one, was two pounds, three ounces. Brielle was just two pounds. Uh, she just couldn't keep up with her sister, who she'd never met. Um, she had breathing and heart problems. Her oxygen levels were low, and, and uh, they were concerned about her. And then one night, there was a, there was a critical situation where uh, she began gasping for breath, and her face and her little uh, stick arms and legs turned blue, and uh, her heart rate shot way up, and it, 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 she went into critical condition, and they, they did everything they know to do, but they, they thought they were going to lose her. And then there was a nurse who'd been studying about what was then a new procedure that was happening in some hospitals in Europe, who had heard about a concept called double bedding, where you take the, the weaker child and you place them in the crib or the incubator with the stronger child. And out of desperation, though she didn't know a lot about it, she asked the parents permission to do it, and, and they said fine, and they, they, they took Brielle, the child, fighting for her life out of her incubator and put her in the incubator with her larger, stronger sister, Kyrie, and instantly... Kyrie, this little baby, somehow, however a baby can, snuggles up to her little sister, and as they begin to touch flesh to flesh, Brielle's vital signs start to turn around. And in a matter of just a few minutes, literally, she was restored to health and was more healthy than she had been heretofore. And the story has a beautiful ending about these two little girls. You know, when I read the story, they were toddlers still sleeping together in the same bed. I don't know why this week when I was reading about God moving in the neighborhood, that story came to mind, but that's the story that came to mind. I, 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 can I say it like this? God crawled into our crib. Here we are 
in all of our weakness and all of our pain and all the darkness and all the stuff that happened because the first human beings told God they wanted to do their thing and not his thing. And here, here, you know, God's been up there as much as he loves us. He's been way, 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 way up there. And it's like there were some people and a certain group of people who, who were able to have some kind of relationship with him, but it was still a God way out there kind of relationship. But God had been working a plan since before the beginning where he knew in what scripture calls the fullness of time at the right time that that he would look at us in our critical condition and God would show up in the flesh of a human being and call us his Hebrews 2 says his brothers and sisters and it's like God God decides to get close God decides this to give, give us strength and energy and hope and peace and life that we simply didn't have in ourselves. God, the translation says, moved into the neighborhood, but can we translate it like this today? God crawled into our crib. And so let's talk about the second witness, John the Baptist. Man, I'm out of time already. I mean, I'm not out of time yet, but I can read the clock. I'm, I'm heading to out of time. John the Baptist. So let's pick up the reading in John where we left off. We left off at John 1.18. Now let's look at John 19 as a second witness. Now this is John the Beloved talking now about John the Baptist. Now here is the witness of John. When the Jewish people of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him, Who are you? Well, John spoke right up. He did not deny it. He spoke right up and said, I am not the Messiah. So they asked him, who then are you? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. So they asked him then, who in the world are you? Will you please tell us so we can give a report to the people who sent us here? What do you say for yourself? He replied, I am a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, some of those who had been sent to investigate John belonged to the Pharisee or Sirius party, and they now ask him, why are you baptizing people at all then if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I am a baptizer in water, but there is a person standing right here in the middle of you whom you don't even recognize. Jesus had become a part of John's congregation and was standing in the crowd listening to John speak, and by this time it appears John had already baptized him, though that's not detailed in John's gospel. It's referred to now. He said, he's coming right after me, but I am unworthy even to untie the straps of his sandals. This, John now, John the evangelist now says, all took place in the Bethany that is on the other side of the Jordan River where John was baptizing people. Now, just a quick little thing. One of the things is you have to see when you read the Gospels is how it's located to, to specific times, specific places, specific people. Um, it's not um, uh, 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 obscure. You, 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 you can actually go exactly to where this gospel is talking about John was baptizing. In fact, you see the picture behind me. There were a number of us, Quentin, uh, guys, a uh, uh, number of us who were there uh, just last February. It seems like a lifetime ago now, a few weeks pre-COVID. And we went to the a spot approximately where John the Baptist baptized Jesus. And, and me and one of our elders, Abe Thomas, baptized 17 people that day. 
I think more than that because people started coming out of the crowd to get baptized too who weren't a part of our group. Baptized 17 people that day in the Jordan River. What does it have to do with anything? Really not nothing, nothing, but I wanted to tell you anyway. You can actually go and you can say, you know, the gospel's saying, hey, I'm not gonna keep this a mystery. Here's where this happened. Here's what time of the day it happened. Here's the person it happened to. Uh, I'll talk here in a few minutes about Simon Peter. We actually went and saw the foundation of Simon Peter's house. This is where Simon Peter lived, not some fundamentalist Christian digging and saying, I prophesy that this is where Simon Peter lived. But Israeli archaeologists digging deep and saying, this is where Simon Peter lived anyway. So this took place in Bethany. There's on this side of the Jordan River where John was baptizing people. The next day, John sees Jesus coming toward him. And he says, look, the Lamb of God, the one who is taking away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about when I said a man is coming right after me who actually ranks well above me because he came way before me, and at first I didn't even recognize him, yet the whole reason I came baptizing in water was so that I could introduce him to Israel, and then John gave this solemn testimony saying, I saw the Spirit coming down like a dove. Now he describes his baptism. I saw the Spirit coming down like a dove out of heaven. You might remember this in a moment when Jesus is baptized. Heaven opens. And, 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 and the Holy Spirit comes down. And, um, and then he said he heard God's voice saying, the one on whom you see the Spirit coming down and then staying right on top of him there. This is the one baptizing in the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness and give testimony. This is the select Son of God. So this is the second witness. It's John the Baptist saying, it's him. Okay. In two consecutive sermons, on two consecutive days, John the Baptist witnessed that Jesus is the Son of God who would come to save the world. There's a lot to be said about this passage and John the Baptist. I just want to quickly focus on verses 19 and 20 in this section. This is where uh, John the Evangelist said, now this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Part of the brilliance of John the Baptist was that he knew who he was and he knew who he wasn't. He knew he was not the Messiah, but that he had come to witness to the Messiah. John was incredibly special and played an, 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 an uh, indispensable role, but the thing that made him indispensable was who he pointed to. He did not point people to himself. He pointed people to Jesus. To which I say this. We must each remember that we are not the Savior. The fact is, most people have a default position, and I think a psychologist might call it a Messiah complex. What do I mean by that? We think we're the ones who are supposed to save ourselves and save the people around us. And we get confused about what our role is in the saving business. What would it look like if we were constantly reminding ourselves that we freely confess, I am not the Messiah and we point ourselves to Jesus. What would happen if in our relationship with people around us who we're trying to save, trying to save my kids, you can't save your kids. You're not the Messiah. 
Everybody's really quiet on that one. Because you're thinking, wait a minute. I, but see, this is the problem. The problem is many of us are anxiety-ridden and riddled with worry and overwhelmed trying to fix ourselves and our spouses and our kids and our friends and our colleagues. We're trying to be the Savior of the world. But you are not the Messiah. The fact is we need to be able to say, look, there's Jesus. He came to do for me and the rest of us what we cannot do for ourselves. How would our lives change? How would we impact the lives of people around us if we would just calmly live with faith in Jesus and constantly point to him as the answer our world needs? We must freely confess who he is and who we are not. If you would let me give you an assignment, you don't have to let me do anything. I only influence you as much as you want me to, okay? But if I can influence you, I encourage you tomorrow morning to look in the mirror and say, I am not the Savior. And then I encourage you to spend time with the Savior so that he can do some saving so that as you face Monday and you face all the darkness, you face it with the power of that Zoe life that turns the lights on. That's what I encourage you to do is to spend your time, you know, get, get over. I know many times it's the most responsible person, you know, who's trying to fix everything. But can I just say this politely as possible, hospitably as possible, get over yourself. Look, there's Jesus. He's here, and I didn't even recognize him. He's going to help me today. I feel like preaching today, but I'm going to teach and go on to that. I don't know the difference. I actually don't know the difference. Here's the second thing, the third thing. The third witness are the disciples. The disciples. So let's pick up the, the text. On the next day, John the Baptist took his place again, and two of his disciples were with him this time. And John looked intently as Jesus. I mean, John, the gospel writer, is such a great writer. John looked intently at Jesus as Jesus is walking by, and he says, Look, the Lamb of God, there he is. He's the one. There he is, the Messiah. And the two disciples heard what John is saying, and they followed Jesus. Two people are in John's congregation. They turn around because John's pointing to Jesus, and they leave John's congregation with John's blessing, and they start following Jesus. John's saying, I, I know I'm not. This is who he is. I'm going to decrease. He's going to increase. See you guys later. And um, Jesus turned around, and they're literally, they're walking behind him. Kind of socially awkward, you would think. And Jesus turned around, and when he saw them following, he says to them, and these are the first words that Jesus says in the Gospel of John. I mean, they're just loaded with import. He says, what are you looking for? This is the first thing Jesus says. What are you looking for? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus says to them, come and see. Note those words. I'm saying a lot of words today, so you probably won't remember. I won't remember very much of it a couple hours from now. But these are words to remember. Jesus says, come and see. He says to them, what are you looking for? And their response back is, where are you staying? And he says, come and see. 
And so they came and saw where he is staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, Andrew is one of those first two disciples. It appears that the second disciple, most scholars believe, was probably John himself, John the Beloved, John the Evangelist. He doesn't say it explicitly, but it looks like that that was probably the second of these first two disciples of John the Baptist who become disciples of Jesus. Now, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard from John and followed Jesus. This Andrew first First thing, first one, finds his own brother, Simon, and says to him, we have found the Messiah, a word which translated means the anointed one. Andrew brought him to meet Jesus. Jesus looked intently at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You are going to be called Cephas, which can be translated rocky. On the next day, he wanted to go back to Galilee, and he finds Philip. And Jesus says to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip finds Nathanael and says to him, the one about whom Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets wrote too, we found him. He's Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathanael says to him, that's great. No, he doesn't. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael was from New Jersey. He was very, very blunt. And Philip says to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and he says about him, Look, really, an Israelite in whom there is nothing phony. And Nathanael says to him, How do you know me? Jesus thought and said to him, Before Philip even invited you here while you were still sitting under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael responded to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel. And I love this picture of these two disciples who, again, we later learn are Andrew and probably John, who hear the witness of, of John the Baptist and begin to walk behind Jesus. And he looks at them and he says, what are you looking for? And of course, the answer to that was they were looking for him. <laughs> they were looking for him. They, 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 they were looking for everything John's described so far. God, life, light, the answer to the holes in their souls and the problems in their world. And then they said, where are you staying? In other words, wherever you're going to be is where we want to be. And he showed them where he was staying, and, and we're told in the text they stayed with him all day. But the reality is we know they stayed with him the rest of their lives. Who are you looking for, Jesus asked. The answer is, we're looking for you. Where are you staying? Well, I'm staying over here. Well, wherever you're going to be, that's where we want to be. As the pastor of the Life Christian Church, I'd like to think I have a sense of what people are looking for. I've had lots of conversations with lots of people, seen lots of people's lives transform over many years. And, 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 and I know that what people are looking for, whether they can put definition to it or not, is they're looking for Jesus and, and all that Jesus brings, God, life, light, the, 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 the whole thing. They're looking for Jesus. And I like to think that I can say, people of TLCC, I pray and plead that we're able to say, you can find what you're looking for here. It's not about, it's not about whether or not we have the best worship team and we, they, they do a great job, and it's not whether or not the teaching is the best. We try hard to serve people well with our teaching, and it's not about the K-Port program. That's really pretty special. It, it really, truly, guys, it can't, all of those things have to be pointing, pointing at Jesus because what people are looking for is ultimately really not that. They're looking for Jesus whether they know it or not. And I want to be able to say, if you come here, if you stay here, Jesus is going to be here. And we're all going to have relationship with Jesus together. Come, come, come and stay with us. 
come and st- Maybe I'm talking to a lot of people, you're not quite sure what you're looking for, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I say to you, sitting at home, you know, on your couch right now, and I say to beautiful people in this room here who've, who've, who've dedicated an hour and a half or two to drive and be here and be a part of this morning, come and stay with us, because I think Jesus is here. And then, and I'll start moving towards a close here, then, then there's this great thing here where, where Jesus meets Simon Peter and then he meets Nathaniel. And part of what happens is when he meets these guys, he lets him know that he saw them before they got there. You know, who's looking for who? The doctrine of prevenient grace, great tenet of theology says, you know, uh, uh, before man can seek for God, God must have first sought for the man. Who's looking for who? Who finds who? Do we find God? Does God find us? Yes. God says, I saw you, I saw you, and not only did I see you, but I know things about you don't know about yourself, and the things I know about you are better than what you know about yourself. So the first time you meet Simon Peter, you know, this is a well-known story, that Simon Peter's not called Simon Peter, Simon's just called Simon. Simon meant reed. And when you're, when you're over there in Israel, there are reeds all over the places. In, in, in water, a reed is a spineless kind of thing that when the water flows, it moves the reed, or the wind blows, it moves the reed. And this kind of describes Simon's personality. Simon was a, he was a, what kind of word do I want to use for? He was a little bit of a mess just in his natural personality. All in, all out praising God, cursing. I mean, he was, a, he was a little bit of a mess. Jesus says, I see you, Simon. I see you. But, but now, from now on, you're going to be called Peter. Or in, in the Aramaic, it's Cephas. In the Greek, it's, 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 it's Peter. You're going to be called Peter, which a lot of translations you see now translates that as rocky. It's actually an actual trans. You're going to go from being a reed to being, you know, running up the stairs at the Philadelphia, wherever you ran up the stairs. You're going to be rocky. You- <laughs> It's not in the text. I see you, Peter. You, 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 you identify yourself in one way, but I see a whole other thing. And he does the same thing with Nathaniel. Nathaniel shows up and he says, uh, you know, Nathaniel's a smart aleck. You know, his brother comes and says, we found the Messiah. Where's he from? Nazareth. No good thing comes out of Nazareth. And, and what does Philip say? He says, come and see. And when Nathaniel shows up, Jesus said, here comes somebody who, the King James says, who has no guile. Here it says, here comes somebody who's not a phony. Here comes somebody who's, from, uh, who's authentic. I don't care that you, that you acted like a smart aleck. I don't care that, that <laughs> which is a nice way of saying <laughs> what I almost said. The, I don't care that, you, that you, there's a guy, you're the real deal. You're not a phony. And I, you know what? I, I like you, Nathaniel. And, and, and Nathaniel says, well, how, 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 do you, you don't even, how do you know who I am? And Jesus said, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. But the fig tree, it's over there. You can't even see the fig tree. I saw you. And see, I like to have this idea that as people come to Jesus, and I, and I hope that some of us might feel this today, that, that Jesus always sees us better than we see ourselves. Jesus sees us in our fully realized humanity. Jesus sees what we can become if he comes into our life. Jesus sees what will happen if we'll follow him and stay with him and hang out with him and study him and get to know God through him. God says, you may feel one 
way, but I'm going to, I see, I saw you, I see you, and I see your future. And so there's this idea that, that he sees us for who we really are, not necessarily just in our present condition, but as our fully realized self. When he shows up, he tells us things that are better about us than we could possibly imagine. And then finally in this section, I would simply say we need to be common seers. We need to be saying to people, I wish I had time to dig into this. Maybe I'll start next week with this part of it. But we need to be people who are saying to the people around us, I found what I'm looking for. And even when they say, you're nuts, you say, come and see. Come and see. Here's the fourth witness. And the piano player's coming, which is a signal to me and all of us that I'm finishing. Um... The fourth witness is Jesus. And man, there's some good stuff here. It's not good stuff because I'm teaching. It's good stuff because of what Scripture says. So he has this, so Nathaniel says to, to Jesus, how do you know me? And Jesus said to him before Philip invited you, I saw you. Nathaniel said, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. It comes to faith like that. And Jesus responded, just a couple verses here. And said to him, is it because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree that you're believing? Oh, Jesus says, you will see greater things than this. I mean, then Jesus says to him, amen, amen. I want to tell you all something very important. You people are going to see the opened heaven and the angels of God ascending, from an, ascending on the Son of Man. So, quickly. Jesus now is going to witness about himself. Remember, as John already told us, Jesus has come to explain God to us, so there are things that he needs to say about himself. Jesus in the Gospels, this is kind of cool, frequently will say amen before he makes a statement. No one else in the Gospel does. You know, so, so when you say amen, you're, you're saying essentially, I agree, yes, yeah, that's yeah, right? So typically we'll say something, then we'll say amen. But Jesus, I guess because he already knew what he was going to say and already agreed with what he was going to say, he'd say amen before he said it. And then when he really wanted to say something really important, he would say like he does here in, in the Gospel of John several times, he says, amen, amen. I mean, it's just cool. Here's Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, standing there talking to these guys, one of who is a smart aleck, one was Simon in all of his craziness, and they're just all trying and looking. And all, tr Anyway, he, he, he looks at him and says, amen, amen. I want to tell you something very important. And then he says, he uses this term, he says, he says, you'll see greater things than this. Amen, amen. I want to tell you all something very important. You people are going to see the opened heaven and the angels of God ascending from and is descending on the Son of Man. This term, Son of Man, is really important. It's the way Jesus most often refers to himself in Scripture, and it has a double meaning. First of all, he's saying he's the son of man, he's part of humanity, but he's also saying something else. Son of man was a term used in the Old Testament to prophesy about the coming Messiah. For instance, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, Daniel said in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. To him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall never be destroyed. Jesus now, in this amazing self-revelation, says, refers to himself as the son of man, 
Essentially, I'm the one to whom the Ancient of Days gave all power, dominion, glory, and honor. Hey, Nathaniel, do you think it's cool that I saw you sitting under the fig tree? Amen, amen. Let me tell you something very important. The Son of Man is going to do greater things than be able to see you under a fig tree. In fact, he said, because I'm here now, the heavens are going to be opened. It's like he says, you know, so I came from all the way up there, but when I came from all the way up there, I didn't close the door, I left it open. And then he refers back, no time to talk about this, to the story of Jacob's ladder where Jacob gets these promises from God at Bethel. You remember the story and these angels were ascending and ascending from heaven to earth. Jesus essentially says, I just want you to know I'm the son of man and I am the ladder between here and heaven. And now because I'm here, the kingdom of heaven has come. And you now have the ability to be in direct communication with heaven. Amen, amen. I'm gonna tell you something very important. The Son of Man is here. Heaven is open. There's a ladder between heaven and earth. And Nathaniel, you thought this little fig tree miracle was something? Just wait, because next week, I'm gonna turn water into wine which is what we're going to talk about next week. Jesus, we love you.